what's the right way to celebrate Christmas? Depending on who and the context of asking that question, you might mean a lot of different things by it. You know, some, some might say, well, it's really not Christmas until the eggnog comes out or the tamales come out. Or maybe it's not Christmas until we watched our, our family's favorite movie. Or we might think, well, it's, it's not right to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. That's the wrong way to celebrate Christmas. Now, if we ask this question as Christians, we mean something different by it. We're asking, what's the right way to commemorate, to mark the birth of Christ? How should it matter for us? Of course, even among Christians, we have debates about what's right or wrong, what might be wise or foolish. Perhaps you've heard Christians argue we shouldn't have Christmas trees. They're a a pagan symbol of, of Yuletide celebrations, and so Christians should avoid that. Or you shouldn't have a little baby Jesus in your nativity, because that's a violation of the second commandment. Or you shouldn't give gifts, because that's participating in worldly consumerism. Maybe these things have been issues for you before. Knowing most of you, I don't think any of them are, are super important to you right now. Perhaps we think about some of those things and think, well, that's, those are just silly, you know. And maybe they are. But I want to submit that it, it's not silly to give serious thought for Christians to, to think deeply about what the birth of Christ should mean, how we should celebrate it, how we should mark it, what effect it should have in our lives. Those are not silly questions at all. We might need to learn to ask better questions, but the impulse to take the question seriously is good. If there's a right way to celebrate Christmas, a right way to apply the birth of Christ, Christians, most of all, should want to know it and to apply it. This morning in this passage before us, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we come to a passage of scripture where God tells us just that. The Apostle Paul, writing to this Philippian church, calls them to reflect on the birth of Christ, Christ who was born of woman, to reflect on this and to reorient their whole lives around it. And he does so in a way that makes it not a debatable matter. We, we can't, Christians can't disagree about what Paul commands here. Paul tells this church and us as we read this letter, if God became a man, if Christ Jesus was born and he died for you, then that great humility and love should be reflected in your life. He calls Christ's humility and love the mind of Christ. And he says, Christian, you must have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ must be in you. And so this morning, we're going to seek to learn how to celebrate Christmas Paul's way, which is another way of saying Scripture's way, which is another way of saying God's way. We're going to look first this morning at what is the mind of Christ. So we're going to kind of take this passage in, in backwards order. What is the mind of Christ? And then secondly, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? for the mind of Christ to be 
in you and me. So let's read together from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. You can find this beginning on page 980 in the Bibles provided. Listen to God's word from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. If you've read the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, then you've learned about the heart of Christ. Jesus tells us about his heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, For I am gentle and lowly in heart. The gentle and lowly Jesus offers rest to those who are wearied by sin. Ortland observes in that book that when we think about Christ, we tend to imagine that he's a reluctant Savior. So we may confess the truth that he came to save, but we imagine that he comes with a grimace. That he he comes to us the way you'd approach a pail full of dirty diapers, right? It's an unpleasant task. But Christ tells us in Matthew 11 what his heart is like in order to correct us, to correct this false image that we have that he's, he's coming with a grimace. In his book, Ortland says, the, the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. If that sounds hard for you to believe, I'd encourage you to read the book. And there's actually four free copies there on the back table. You'll find that it's rooted in scripture and rich careful theology it will encourage your soul so grab a copy or maybe if you need to do some last minute christmas shopping let this be your gift that you give to that friend that you neglected until today that's matthew 11 we get the heart of christ but in philippians 2 we get another perspective into the inner life of christ here paul tells us about the mind of christ he answers the question what was christ thinking And we find that the mind and heart of Christ are not two separate things, but two perspectives on the same reality. Paul even uses one of the same words that Jesus used of himself in Matthew 11. Jesus described his heart as lowly. Paul uses the same Greek word to say that Christ humbled himself here in Philippians 2. He became lowly. 
the heart of Christ, is filled with compassion for sinners, and therefore Christ set his mind on serving and saving them. As we look at the mind of Christ, we need to make sure we don't get ahead of ourselves and get to him emptying himself and humbling himself. We need to first see that the mind of Christ was set on contemplating his glory as he is God. That's where we should begin. If we want the mind of Christ in us, we need to join him in contemplating the glory of Christ as God. So as Paul introduces us to the mind of Christ in verse 6, he says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ is considering his own divinity. That's just a fancy word for his, his godness. We have to admit these are some strange expressions, form of God, something to be grasped. But the the basic meaning is clear enough. We're being told, first of all, that the one we know as Christ is no ordinary person. So we we speak of his birth and we we understand it's it's similar to all of our births. He was was born of a woman, right? But we, we understand, you know, that we, the, the baby is conceived in the womb, that that's when the baby's life begins, and then, and then the baby's born. Well, not so for Christ. There was a time before Christ was conceived in Mary's womb that he existed. He was God. Paul says he was in the form of God. And this, this form doesn't mean that Jesus is some kind of shapeshifter. You know, sometimes he appears in the form of God, then he changes it up and appears in the form of man. It's Paul's way of saying that before his birth, Christ's form matched his essence. Christ's form matched his godness. Before he became man, Christ, if we could have seen him then, would have appeared in all of his divine glory. John 1.1 tells us that Jesus is the word who was made flesh and he was there in the beginning. The word was God, the word was with God. Before he was born, he was God, and he continues to be God. We see that he was both God the Son, and at that time, he appeared in divine glory. He was God and in the form of God. And this brings us to Christ's contemplation of his own glory. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We see here that Christ has every right to lay claim to his divine glory. It's his For him to say, I am God, was not to steal glory from God, because he was God. And yet, we're told, he does not grasp to it, or for it. He does not cling to his divine glory. Instead, he lays it aside. This is not saying that he sheds his divinity, that he kind of puts a pause button on his godness for a while, and becomes man, and then switches back later. But rather, he he laid aside the glory that belonged to him as God for a time for the sake of taking the form of a servant. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. But for now, the point is to see that the one we call Jesus Christ is God. For all eternity, he is the glorious, eternal son of God. He lived in fellowship with God. Before he was born, he was God, fully equal with the Father. All the things we've already confessed and sung about. Hopefully you, you caught on that the second verse of O Come All You Faithful, which I think a lot of hymnals don't include, thankfully the Trinity hymnal does, is just a repetition of the words of the Nicene Creed. We say, God of God, light of light, 
He abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. That word very just means true, true God. Paul doesn't use the title Son of God here in Philippians 2, but what he says matches up with what we know from the Gospel of John. And we we see Jesus himself speaking this way in John 17. He's praying to God the Father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The man Jesus is no ordinary man. He existed in eternity past in perfect divine glory. Just consider with me what it means to confess that Christ, the one born in the manger in Bethlehem, is the glorious Son of God. It means that Christ is the Almighty God who created all things and who rules over all things. It means that He's the eternal God who exists outside of time and space. It means that He's the perfect God God, that he's perfect in goodness and truth and love. That he's the eternally happy God. He lived in perfect, harmonious fellowship with himself as one person of the Trinity. He's the righteous God, the judge of all. He's the one against whom human beings rebelled in the garden. He's the God who's merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So whatever glorious realities that the scriptures ascribe to God, those are attributes that belong to Christ. This is the glory that Christ rightly lays claim to. It's his. So again, if we can imagine ourselves in a a time machine going back to before Jesus was born, And then we we get into another kind of machine that gives us a clear, true picture of Jesus before he was born in his divinity. We would know him as God in all of his glory. Brilliant. Dwelling in unapproachable light, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy. So the mind of Christ is, first of all, the mind of God set upon his own glory. God glorying in his godness. Christ was equal with God. In the words of the old King James, he he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So if we want to have the mind of Christ, we start here with the glory of Christ, the Son of God. And that brings us to the second aspect of the mind of Christ, is that Christ emptied himself. We see this in verse 6. He emptied himself, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, Actually, this is verse 7, but emptied himself. The glorious God, the ruler of all things, didn't cling to his glory, but he laid it aside. And so we see the, the ruler takes the form of a servant. He became man. We've also sung about this. In Hark the Herald, we hail Christ as the son of righteousness and then confess that mild he lays his glory by born that men no more may die. In the Nicene Creed, we confess that for us and for our salvation, he, speaking of Christ, came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. All of this, the glorious Son of God did, and he did it willingly. We could say even voluntarily for us. We see that the mind of Christ was not set 
on retaining all of his rights and privileges as God. And that's so different from us. If we've got rights and privileges, we cling to them. But Jesus emptied himself. In the words of John Calvin, Jesus chose for a time to conceal his glory in his humanity. Or as Hark the Herald puts it again, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. The glorious divine king veiled his glory in the form of a servant. Here is the mind of Christ. Not clinging to his glory, but laying it aside to be born. But that's not all he does. There's two steps to what Christ does here. So we can speak of it first with Paul as emptying himself. Second, as humbling himself. He empties himself. Once emptied, he humbles himself. So that that emptying is becoming a man, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Step two is the man Christ Jesus humbled himself, being found in the likeness of self. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in other words, if if the the glorious son of God had, had emptied himself and become a man and was born into Caesar's household, that would have still qualified as emptying. For the, for the Son of God to become a man was, was emptying himself. But the mind of Christ drove him to an even greater humiliation. Where he wasn't born in Caesar's household. He was born to this poor Galilean couple. And he was born to die. The emptied one humbled himself. So that he could die for sinners. And he didn't die an honorable death. He died the most shameful death. For God's law said everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. So the glorious Son of God emptied himself and then he humbled himself. As one writer put it, this would be unimaginable if Scripture didn't reveal it. So not only was the Eternal One born in time and space, but the, the pure and holy and righteous One took sin upon himself. Not that he committed any sin, but he was numbered among the transgressors, as Isaiah says in 53.12. He was pierced for our transgressions. Here's how the great church father Augustine describes Christ's humiliation. Man's maker was made man. That he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger. That the fountain thirst. The light sleep. The way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. God became a man, and the man Christ poured out his soul to death. And remember that in all of this, Paul is not describing things that sort of just happened to Jesus, that he had no control over. We're talking about what he himself chose to do, what his mind was set upon. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. This is what he willingly chose to do. With God the Father and the Spirit, Christ knew his own glory 
He knew the goodness of what he made. He, he knew the holiness and happiness of Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden. And he also knew how great man's rebellion was against God. And Christ's answer to man's rebellion was to empty himself, to become a man, and then to humble himself, to die in our place. The mind of Christ was not set on keeping a firm grip on all of his rights and privileges. His mind was set on laying these aside and loving and serving us, his rebellious enemies. He served us by paying the price of our sin. So we can say the mind of Christ is set on love, loving his people. That's what he did. Paul makes it explicit here, as we think about keeping and celebrating Christmas, that the birth of Christ can never be disconnected from his death. He was born to die, born to be obedient to the point of death. So our Christmas celebrations, however they may culturally appear, should always be joyfully cross-shaped. The Son of God's purpose in coming, in being born, was to die. The peace on earth that we sing about, the, the God and sinners reconciled, required Jesus to absorb God's wrath that was rightly due our sin. And so a true celebration of the birth of Christ requires saving faith in his death. That's where the, the contemplation of the mind of Christ should first lead us. And you can see that in the way that Paul calls us to, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says that one day all people will do that. Even those who lie, in, lie under the earth dead, they will arise and they will confess Christ as Lord. But I think it's right that we kind of import this last day's truth into the present and say, here is how we keep Christmas. We confess Jesus as Lord. He is the glorious Son of God who come to save us. We receive and celebrate his birth by trusting in what he came to do. When we think about celebrating Christmas, this should be at the center. Have I received the love of Christ? Have I trusted in the glorious love he, he came to show by emptying himself and humbling himself? We welcome the baby Jesus by resting our lives on the crucified and risen Jesus. So another way to ask is, how are you celebrating Christmas? Is really to say, are you saved by Jesus? Have you been saved by him? Are you confessing him as Lord? And this is all the more an urgent question because of what Paul says about the future. That the God-man Jesus has died and been resurrected and exalted by God. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you're not saved by faith in Christ now, if we've not submitted to his lordship, Paul is declaring that one day every human being will submit to Christ. When Christ returns in his glory and power, all will recognize his lordship. But this comes with a warning. The Bible scholar Alec Matir says, A confession made for the first time in response to the visible manifestation of Christ's glory will not be a saving confession. 
but a grudging acknowledgement wrested by overmastering divine power from the lips that are still as unbelieving as they were through their whole earthly experience. He says, all will submit, all will confess, but not all will be saved. Friends, don't ignore Christ. He set his mind on salvation. If If you don't repent of your sins and confess him as Lord and Savior in this life, you will one day face him but with no opportunity for repentance and salvation. There's a very real sense that time is running out. I don't say that to scare anyone, but just to sober you with the reality. Have you received Jesus' love? Have you confessed him as Lord? We see this all around us. Last week, my dad lost his his uncle at the age of 90. Our brother Jason... It just felt like he was really close to death. He was driving home from a basketball game a few weeks ago and said he almost passed out from the pain in his, his gut. He thought it was stomach pain, but it was probably his heart. I know of a young girl in the D.C. area who's been hospitalized, and she's in the PICU with seizures that the doctors can't stop. We hear about these things all around us. So life is so fragile. Our, our time is limited. We will one day face Christ as our glorious judge. And so today is the day to repent of our sins, to receive the love that he set his mind to show, to trust in his death on the cross for your sins. Today is the day. Paul's description of the mind of Christ shows us Christ contemplating his own glorious God, but not clinging to it. That he was set on emptying himself, of of laying aside his divine rights, and then humbling himself for our sake. It's one of the most awe-inspiring realities that we could ever contemplate, as Pastor John led us through earlier. And the hymn, And Can It Be, captures it perfectly. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The truth of the incarnation should move us to worship. We should worship by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul makes that application for us, but that's not really the major application in Philippians 2. The big idea of the passage is that Christ's people should have Christ's mind in ourselves. That we should think the way that Jesus did, that Christ did. This is the the big application. This would be the, the big way Paul says, this is how you should celebrate Christmas. And and not just at Christmas. The mind of Christ should be in you. The the mind of Christ you see on full display in the Incarnation. That should be what moves you all the time. So we go back to the beginning of the chapter. We see that it begins with an if statement. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul begins with this if but he doesn't mean this in a way that's uncertainty, like, well, maybe, maybe there is, but maybe there isn't. He means that this is, this is a sure thing. You could really substitute since there. Since there is encouragement in Christ, this is how you should live. The word encouragement there, encouragement in Christ, is the same word we saw translated last week in Luke 2 as consolation or comfort. So in other words, Paul's saying, since you've been encouraged by the gospel this truth of God becoming man to save you, imitate 
his humble, sacrificial love. Since you've been comforted by Christ, love like Christ. Comfort others with the same comfort you've received from Christ. And so we must have the mind of Christ. Not grasping for our own rights, but loving the way he did. Not doing anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. We're not searching for our own conceited glory. Instead, we humble ourselves, pouring ourselves out to serve others. We we count each other more important, more significant than than we do ourselves. We put others first, such that we're willing to sacrifice what we have for them. And in all this, again, the standard for this is Christ himself. Christ emptied himself of any claim he had to be treated like God in order to become a man. Christ humbled himself to death. This is the pattern for the whole Christian life. The the echoes of the incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ are meant to, to ripple out in Christ's people until Christ returns. But we have to recognize this is not something, this pattern is not something that we imitate by sheer willpower. It's it's fair to say it requires great strength of will. The strength we need comes from the encouragement and comfort of the gospel. Again, that's why we start off with all these ifs. There's no hope of, of living this kind of life if we don't know deep in our souls the comfort of the gospel. So if, we, if we've already started recognizing, I, I'm not loving like Jesus loves, there's a disconnect between where I am right now and the kind of sacrifice that Paul commands. The answer is to, to go back to the gospel itself. Know it for yourself and cultivate joy in the gospel. The same commentator I mentioned a minute ago, Alec Matir, notes that Philippians 2 verse 1 echoes Paul's benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The one we we say every other week. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here Paul is saying Christians have received those blessings from the Lord. So, So when we say that each week, we're not just giving you kind of a good wish. We're saying this is yours in Christ. Go out of this place knowing that you have the grace of Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit. Just consider each of those things. We, we've all been encouraged, strengthened, comforted by Christ, haven't we? We should have been condemned by God. We, we stood guilty before him. We stood powerless to change our sinful hearts. But Christ strengthened us. By his work, he, he washed us. He's forgiven us. And because of Christ, we have courage to do what? To draw near to God, to the throne of grace, with confidence. We've been strengthened by Christ. And in Christ, we know the comfort of the Father's love. We were once enemies of God because of our sin. His righteous wrath was against us. But now we confess that in Christ, we've been adopted by God. We're his beloved children. You realize what this means? We don't have to sit around wondering, does God love me? We don't have to imagine that his love will ever be taken away from us. We confess Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And so we are now safe in the Father's love. Nothing can separate us from his love. You have comfort 
in love, in the love of God. And what's more, God the Father and God the Son have poured out their love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship in the Spirit. We participate in the Spirit. It's the same phrase in Greek. The Holy Spirit has come and made his home with us. I heard, heard that expression first from Sinclair Ferguson preaching on John. It sounds so much better in a Scottish brogue. He's made his home with us. So we are never alone. We're no longer powerless, enslaved to sin. But God is with us every moment by the power of the Spirit to empower our obedience, to empower us to sacrifice the way Jesus did. And we know that he will be with us all the time. He will never leave us or forsake us. This is how we face death. We say that everyone dies alone, but well, you don't, brother and sister. You will die in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. These great gospel blessings are ours. We have them. We are encouraged by Christ. We're comforted with love. We fellowship in the Spirit. And that brings us to the last clause of the, the if clauses. If you have any affection and sympathy. All of these glorious realities should produce affection and sympathy. That means affection for God and sympathy, which is an, it could be translated compassion for God's people. You know, knowing all that we have in Christ, knowing all that Christ has done for us, that he humbled himself for us, we love God and we serve his people. This is what we have in Christ. So to have the mind of Christ requires first knowing and rejoicing in the love of God for us in Christ. But there's something else about the mind of Christ that we might easily miss. Christ's mind is set on God's people. We might make the mistake of taking Paul's teaching here in Philippians 2 as if it's just a, a call to love everyone in general, the whole world. And certainly we understand that Christians have that obligation, right? Everyone is our neighbor, even our enemy. But here specifically, Paul is writing to this church, a specific congregation in Philippi. He's writing to this church that's under persecution. He's told them in the previous chapter that they have the, the grace of, of suffering with Christ, just like Paul is suffering in prison. And Paul is teaching them here in chapter 2, here's how you're going to endure suffering. You're going to endure suffering by being united in Christ-like love for each other. Look at verse 2. Paul, even though he's in prison... This is what Paul's joy looks like. The imprisoned Paul says, I will be joyful if X happens. And X is, you are like, you are of the same mind. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is what he wants for this persecuted Philippian church. That they would have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The radical sacrificial love that Paul commands here is love that church members should show for one another. So we, we often speak of unity as unity around the truth, and that's right. We use a statement of faith in our church for this purpose. Those are the truths that we gather around. They define what we believe, and that's the most important thing about any church is what it believes. But there's another kind of vital unity that we are also pursuing. We might call this a, a unity of heart, mind, and action. 
So with our hearts, we aim to be the people whose affections are set aflame by the gospel, and ever more so. So we have the affections set on the gospel because of what Christ has done for us. We want to be growing in that. And then in our minds, we want to be humble people. We're growing in humility, who are growing and thinking less of ourselves and about our own needs and more about the needs of our brothers and sisters in the church. We want to have the right heart and the right mind and then the right action. We aim to be people who serve each other in costly ways. I'm not talking about financial costs, which sometimes that's, that's the case, but emotional costs, relational costs, time costs. We give of ourselves for each other. We, we sacrifice other good things we could be doing to bless each other. We want to be united in that. There's a lot of things that we don't really care if we're united about, you know, all of our political views, our sports teams, those things we can be diverse about. But in some things, we want, we want actual uniformity, that we are all pursuing these aims, affections inflamed by the gospel, humble hearts that love each other, and, and practical service, where we're outdoing one another in doing good. And these things, Paul is saying, are not things that each of us sort of sits around kind of watching, saying, well, I'm going to step in as soon as I see you step in. No, Paul calls each member of the church to pursue the mind of Christ. To, to see each other as better than. To look out for each other's, own, uh, each other's interests and not our own. To have this mind among us. To count others more significant. In all of these ways, the church is strengthened. As Christians, again, we, we do try to be thoughtful about the way we celebrate Christmas. We recognize, you know, just buying lots of stuff is not the way to honor Christ, even if it's okay to buy stuff. But I don't think most of us would think, well, you know, the, the right way to keep Christmas and celebrate Christmas is to love the people in my church. None of us naturally go there, right? But when the Apostle Paul applies the reality of the incarnation of Christ, this is where he goes. If you know the God who became man, if you know the Christ who was born to die, then your love for Christ's church should tell that story. It should show up in your life. And we see clearly this is a story that should reverberate well beyond the Christmas season. This is how all of our lives should be oriented. The incarnation of Christ and the death of Christ set the agenda for the entire Christian life. So each of us should ask, is it setting the agenda for my life, for the way I'm living the Christian life? If my neighbor looked at the way I love my church members, could they tell that I worship the God who became man to sacrifice himself for his beloved people? Do we love Christ's people the way Christ did? And is there anything that we're unwilling to sacrifice? Is the mind of Christ in you? Christ is the eternal, glorious Son of God. He knew his own glory. He knew what was his by right. But he emptied himself. He laid down for a time the, the glory that was his, and he became man. He concealed it in the form of a servant. 
born in the lowliest of circumstances. And yet even from there, humbled himself still further. He gave all that he had in obedience to God. He gave all that he had in love for us. He gave his very life. Christ was so set upon serving sinners, and he did it so that sinners could be forgiven of their sin and find life by his death. This is the mind of Christ. Have you confessed Christ as your Lord? Do you love the way Christ loves? Is the mind of Christ in you? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you reveal yourself to us in Christ. We thank you, thank you for the, the scriptures we've read about a child born, a son given, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God. I thank you that we don't simply have that prophecy from Isaiah, but we have the history of how it came to be. We know the good news of Jesus born to die in our place, of Jesus raised from the dead in vindication of his righteous life, of Jesus exalted, sitting at your right hand, interceding for us. Father, fill our hearts and minds with visions of Christ's glory, of his lovely mind. Father, may the mind of Christ be in us. We pray for help to repent. If you, if you have brought to our minds ways that we are not loving well, Father, grant us repentance and faith. We pray that our church would be a church where the fruit of your spirit is on display in our relationships so that the world would see us and be amazed, that they would say the mind of Christ is in this place. We pray that in all that we do, we would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.